So this, today's message is truly, for me, is, is, the, is the heaviest message of the series thus far. And if it's your first time here, if you've just started to hang out with us, we have been in a long series, the longest series we've ever preached as a church called The End Game, Exposed by Jesus. The heart of the series is to look at the detailed teachings of Jesus in Matthew 24, 25, the Old Testament, Daniel and Ezekiel, and primarily out of the book of Revelation, where we look at the teachings on the end times the teachings on, on the great tribulation, as Jesus calls it, the seven-year period of time and everything that leads up to this uh, moment uh, where, where really the judgment of, of God is poured out upon the earth and it precedes the coming of Jesus Christ. And that, that's, that's everything we started. When, when this is message 10, from message one in Matthew 24 to Jesus's first warnings and teachings of this. Everything that we've studied, everything that we looked at, it's all building up to the second coming of Christ. And the, in the tribulation, Revelation specific, specifically teaches us the details of what happens in this seven-year period. And uh, we've looked at so far, and I, I know if this is your first time here, if you haven't caught up, I don't want you to feel lost. I, I've tried to teach each one of these messages in a way that even if it's your first time here, if you're a brand new Christian, if you've never studied Revelation, that you would be able to get the weight of it and that you would be able to take something away from it. So if it's your first time here, if you're not, don't feel like you're lost, don't feel like you're behind because the Lord will still use this message in your life. But the, the, the book of Revelation, it, it is, it's a weird book. Let's just be honest. If, if, you're, if you're new to the faith or, or you've been with Jesus for 50 years, Revelation's a weird book. And the reason that it is is because God is giving John uh, a, a series of very detailed looks at the future. And he does this through giving John visions. It says that John was on the island of Patmos on a Sabbath day, and he was caught up in the spirit. Now, that's just, that's just outside our norm. But what that means is that John, on a Sabbath day on the island of Patmos, that he went into a spiritual state and began to have these visions and these dreamlike moments with God. And God began to show him things and reveal things to him. And with each vision that he saw, and some of them are just out there, but with each vision that he saw, God gave a detailed explanation of it. And each thing that he saw relayed to reality. It, it opened up a door, a moment, an event, a situation, an atmosphere, an environment in the future. And so if you, when you actually go through it and you actually read it and you actually study it and you actually understand it, though it's still a little weird, it's actually very clear. And, and one of the things that, that I think we have seen as a church, if you have been with us through this journey, is that the Bible from Daniel to Ezekiel to Matthew 24 to Revelation to Thessalonians, that the Bible has been extremely powerfully accurate in predicting the direction that this world has gone in. Amen? down to the powerful, specific details of culture and government and technology. And once you hear it, you'll never be able to unhear it. And I think that this is one of those reasons why Jesus, at the beginning of Revelation, he gives a special blessing uh, to the book. He says, if you read it, and if you hear it read, and if you understand it, and you obey it, there is a special blessing that comes to your life. This was Jesus, the son of the living God, giving us a blessing. This was Jesus saying, listen, I want you to read this book. I want you to hear this book taught. I want you to understand it, and I want you to obey it, because it will bring a, a special blessing into your life. It will 
will give you wisdom to see the direction the world will go and it, it, will, it will align your heart and your mind. And so as, as we got into the actual tribulation, we started the first vision. John sees these, this parchment and this is how they used to write. They would write on parchment and then they would roll it up and then they would seal it. And, and the more seals, usually the longer and deeper it is, but each of the seals would have who wrote it and maybe who it's going to, and, and it, would, it would be informational. But on this parchment that he saw, there was seven seals that sealed up this parchment. And every time a seal was taken off, it revealed another piece of the future, another event in the tribulation. And so we've already taught through the first six seals. And... and the, the first six seals, they were all what some theologians call the passive wrath of God, meaning that God didn't actually cause anything or do any actionable judgment on the earth during the tribulation, that this was God simply lifting his hand, that the first part of the tribulation, it's all the work of wickedness. It's all the work of the Antichrist, the work of the false prophet, the work of, of, of the wicked and the evil and the sinful here on the earth. It's war and it's famine uh, and it, it, it's martyrdom. It's, it's, it's the killing of Christians. And, and, and what, what passive wrath is, is, it's not that God does something and not that God pours out judgment, but that God allows the world that rejected the truth of Jesus, that rejected his son, that rejected his love and his grace, the world that, that chose sin, chose wickedness, chose evil, chose the Antichrist, God lifts his hand. And the first five seals specifically are really the weight of living in wickedness without the power of the Holy Spirit restraining and holding it back. It's, it's, it's basically the world, the sinful world that rejected Jesus gets exactly what they said they wanted, a world without God ruled by evil and wickedness. And it's war, it's famine, it's destruction, it's, it's horrible. But as we move into the seventh trumpet, and which we'll read in just a minute, the seventh trumpet is a, tra I mean, the seventh seal is a transitional moment that introduces a new part of the vision called the seven trumpets. And it's more events of the tribulation. The biggest difference between the seven seals, the first six seals, and then the seven trumpets is that it's the passive wrath of God. It's just God removing his hand and evil taking over. But the second trumpet, so the second phase of the tribulation, it's actionable judgment of God. It's God pouring out judgment and wrath on the earth. And so before we, we transition from the seals to the trumpets, and if you're lost, don't be lost. It's, you'll understand completely by the end of the message. But I, I, the Lord laid a scripture heavy on my heart to prepare our hearts and prepare our minds for this second phase of the tribulation and for the seven trumpets because there is some heaviness to this message. And we need a right mindset as we, as we study this and read this and perceive the wrath and the judgment of God on the earth. So I want to read you 2 Peter, starting uh, chapter 3, starting with verse 1, because Peter commits all of this section of his letter to the church. He commits all of it to the thought process of the second coming of Christ, specifically to that of judgment. I'm not going to have time to read the whole chapter, but I want to read a few of the verses so that we could have a right mindset when it comes to the second coming of Christ and specifically to judgment. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Beloved, 
This is now my second letter to you. Both of them are reminders to stir you to wholesome thinking. In the Greek, it just says a pure mind or an uncontaminated mindset. By recalling what was foretold by the holy prophets and commanded by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So what Peter says is, is what I'm about to teach you. The, the first letter I sent you, everything that I've written up to this point, and what I'm about to teach you, what I'm about to remind you of, it's meant to purify your mindset. It's meant to uncontaminate your thought process specifically towards the second coming of Christ and the last days. He says, so the heart of what I'm about to do, the heart of what I'm about to remind you of, the heart of what I'm about to show you is actually going to give you wisdom and it's going to give you the right perspective of the second coming of Christ and allow you with that wisdom and with that right perspective to see the judgment of God in the right light. And so this is the first thing he says. Second Peter 3, verse 3. Most importantly, you must understand. Now, just you don't have to be some great Bible scholar to know when something says, most importantly, you must understand that you should probably understand the thing that he's about to say. This is one of those things. Sometimes the Bible is a little complicated, but most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's cut and dry, very simple, and this is one of those moments. He says, most importantly, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. Where is this promise of his coming? They will ask, ever since our fathers fell asleep, everything continues as it has from the beginning to creation. So this is, for Peter, this is extremely important because he says, most importantly, you must understand. So one of the most important things that you could understand is that in the last days, it says that scoffers will come scoffing, mockers will come mocking and following their own evil desires, and they will be calling out the Christian belief calling out Jesus with a sarcastic, where is the promise of his coming? And so what Peter wants us to understand is that as we get into the last days, as we see right now before our very eyes, one of the greatest mockeries of Christ, one of the greatest arguments from, from those who don't believe in Jesus, from those who've rejected the truth of the Bible, is if Jesus is Jesus, why don't he just come back? If Jesus is really savior, if Jesus is really the king, if Jesus is really the resurrected one, if Jesus really died for the sins of people, if Jesus is really the king of the universe, if Jesus is this powerful anointed Messiah and savior, if Jesus is everything the Bible says, if Jesus is everything the Christians say, then why don't he just come back right now and prove it? Why don't he just show up right now today and put the whole thing to a rest? Why don't he come in his great power and all of his majesty and all of his glory and with all of his angels and just show up and take care of business and sit on a throne and everybody will serve him and everybody will bow down to him? Why don't Jesus, if he can, why don't he just do it? But he won't do it because he can't do it. He won't do it for whatever reason because time has gone on as it always has from the beginning to earth until now and it will always go on for whatever reason, either Jesus isn't real, or Jesus can't do it, or Jesus was just a prophet, or Jesus really wasn't the Son of God, or it's all fake from beginning to end. Peter says, in the end, this will be the attitude of the unbeliever. This will be how they scoff at Jesus. This will be how they mock Jesus. And Peter says, now I want you to have the right mindset towards it. And so then he says several things that are very profound. 
He says, beloved, I'm, I'm skipping the verse eight. He says, beloved, do not let this one thing escape your notice. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the first thing Peter says is you've got to understand that to God, time frames and to you, time frames are two very different things. To God, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. We are actually cursed. Time is actually a curse to us. Because the only reason we have to deal with time, we pop out of the womb, fat little babies who waddle and can't walk. We do our things for a few years. We get fat again. Then we get old. Then we can't walk. And then we go to the grave. Okay? It's a, it's just a cycle. And I know the younger you are, the more you don't think about it. But the older you are, the more you think about it. Right? Time is, 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 is what it is to us because of death. And death is what it is and exists because of sin. Time is nothing to God. God waiting a thousand years is nothing, but it's 10 lifetimes to us. And so he says, because of this reason, you cannot view the second coming of Christ from your perspective because your perspective is flawed from sin and just because you are trapped in the concept of time. But God waiting, Christ waiting, Jesus waiting for hundreds of years or thousands of years, it's nothing for him, but it means everything to us. Because what he says as he goes on, he says, the Lord is not slow uh, at keeping his promises as some understand slowness, but he's being patient specifically with you, specifically with those who are scoffing and mocking him. He says, the reason that he's patient it's because he is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the heart of this, the heart of what Peter's trying to get us to understand is that Jesus Christ is not being slow at keeping his promises, but he's being patient in his love and his mercy and his grace. He's desiring every generation to have as much time as humanly possible to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows something that we are going to learn today and more next week and more in the final message that the world chooses to reject and not consider is that as they scoff and as they mock at Jesus saying, if he can come, why don't he just come? Jesus is hesitating, not because he's slow, not because he lacks ability, but because he's being patient because Jesus knows when he does return, when he comes in the clouds with his army and he does return, it will be too late for those who have rejected him. And their only future will be a swift execution from Jesus himself on this earth. Jesus is hesitating and he is being patient because he wants to give them the opportunity to have the fruit of salvation that came from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus absorbed the wrath and the judgment of the Father on the cross. Jesus died the death that every single human being deserves. Jesus died the death a sinner dies so that we could live. And when we reject Jesus, then we don't get to experience the salvation from the wrath. People think in their messed up mind that, that people were saved somehow from the wrath of Satan or from Satan, that Satan had us imprisoned. Jesus saved us from the wrath of the Father. 
And so when you reject Christ, Jesus knows that when he returns, time is up and that judgment is poured out on the earth. And so I, I want you to have this in our mind. I want this to give us wisdom because we're about to read some things. And if we have, if we've just come to Christ or maybe we don't know Jesus or, or we come from a, a bad church background where it was super religious and all you heard all day long was about hell and, and about fire and he just told you a thousand times to don't smoke, drink, or have sex in the back of cars. That was one of my most dominant church experiences. And I was like, does that dude think that's the only place that can happen? Like, is it okay outside the car? I'm confused. Like, this, this dude, like, there are so many churches that get so religious and, and get so bent and they, they preach so one side that, that it, it, it makes people, there's a, an unhealthy fear of it. But the reality of it is, though he is loving and he is filled with grace and he is mercy and he is long-suffering and he is patient and he is slow to anger and he sent his only son to die on a cross for your sins, that he's done everything that he can. If in the end you reject Christ, you will be destroyed as your sins so deserve. So give your life to Jesus is the most dominant message that I could bring to you today. But as we go into the second phase of the tribulation, I want us to understand the heart of God. The heart of God is always that they would repent. The heart of Jesus is not wanting anyone to perish. That everything God has done is to lead people out of the darkness. Every, even part of the tribulation, you have to remember as we move into this second part, you have to remember that he sent the two witnesses who are, are performing supernatural powers and they're testifying for three and a half years of the gospel and of Jesus. That he raised up 144,000 men, powerful men of God, to travel the world preaching the gospel in the middle of the tribulation. That God sends angels. Now, we don't know if they look like angels or they look like men, but God sends angels to preach the gospel to the whole world, to warn them of the Antichrist. You have to remember, all of this is going on. So God's giving them every opportunity in the book. But then we transition to the second phase of the tribulation, and I wanna, I wanna read this. This is gonna be, all this is gonna be out of Revelation 8 and 9. And I wanna start the second phase with the seventh seal, the last seal. This is Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. <clears throat> when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and they were given seven trumpets. So the seventh seal is a transition. And I want you to really understand the weight of that first verse. There was silence in heaven for half an hour. Every picture that we see in Revelation of heaven, it is loud. It is worshipful. There are people praising and worshiping God. There are multitudes upon multitudes upon multitudes of angels and men worshiping God. There's martyrs under the altar worshiping God. It is loud. It is, it is incredible. And so for heaven to go silent for half an hour is a significant deal. And I, what I believe is happening here, and I, and I want to I wanna try to put this in Daniel, it says twice, and Jesus affirms in Matthew 24 that right in the middle of the tribulation, Something takes place called the abomination that causes desolation. 
the abomination or the sinful act, the wicked act that causes destruction takes place right in the middle of the seven years, right at the three and a half year mark. What it is is the Antichrist sets up an idol on the, uh, the temple mount where the holies of holies was in the, in the temple. And he sets up some type of idol and he, he declares himself God and he commands that the world will worship him and the world does worship him. So for something to silence heaven, all of heaven, it has to be something insane. And I think that it's fairly obvious. I can't think of anything else that would silence heaven except the abomination that causes desolation, except for the Antichrist officially, publicly declaring himself, lifting himself up above all other gods, declaring himself God, and then the world actually begins to worship him in that moment. And you have to remember the name, abomination that causes desolation, the sinful act that causes destruction, because what comes is absolute, utter, chaotic destruction. The seventh seal is when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. So the vision that John is having changes. He now sees, in the seventh seal, he now sees the seven angels that stand before God. They each receive a trumpet. And as each one blows this trumpet, another event takes place on the earth. And what I want to go and tell you, the first four trumpets, it, it, is, it is highly agreed upon, and I deeply believe it, that these first four trumpets seem to be all one catastrophic, apocalyptic event. It is something significant. So you have to understand the timing. Abomination that causes desolation, silence in heaven, and then bam, this massive catastrophic event takes place. What the first four trumpets are is it's showing, I believe it's showing the outcomes, the different outcomes of this one catastrophic event. Spoiler alert, I think it's an asteroid, okay? Let's just, let's just talk about it for a minute. I think it's an asteroid. You'll, I think you'll agree with me when you get down, but let's just talk about asteroids for a minute. Do you remember back in like 1999 to around 2004 where the whole world got super obsessed with the end of the world? I think because of the Mayan calendar. Remember that? Every other movie that came out was about asteroids hitting the earth, volcanoes blowing up, earthquakes taking LA inside, like just everything. You know, then, then they were like, hey, we ran out of ideas so they made this other movie. We were like, let's take all those ideas, put them into one movie. That was one with Jake Gyllenhaal. It was like seven hours long and there's floods and ice and everything. And, and this, the world just became obsessed with the end of the world. And they started lighting all this out. Personally, I love the movie Armageddon. You remember that movie back in the day with Bruce Willis and Benny Affleck? And that, remember, it was just, it was just a, such a good movie. The, ever, the, uh, the scene, Ben Affleck, he was there. He was a cute dude. He's the animal crackers on her little belly. Aerosmith singing in the background. Just a normal Tuesday. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and they get, they get the, the, the rednecks off the oil rig, and they go to space, and they blow this thing up. And at the end, you know, Ben Affleck draws the short straw, and then she's crying, and he goes down, and then Bruce Willis is like, no, and he throws him out, and he just, he dies and blows it up. Remember that movie? <laughs> Come on. Everybody, raise your hand if you see it. Everybody loves that movie, okay? And if you haven't seen it, no need to watch it now. But... Uh, while I'm blowing away Bruce Willis movies, if you ever watch The Sixth Sense, he's dead the whole time. I want to throw that out there too. I'm telling you, he is. But I wanted to bring that up 
because I think it's fun to laugh right before we talk about the end of the world. I just think it's a good thing to do. Uh, the first four trumpets, I, I, I believe, once we go through this, I, I believe it's, 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 it'll be obvious. The only other thought process is that it's a nuclear bomb. That's what it's kind of been. But I think after you, after you really break this down and you really look at these first four trumpets, and combined with the timing and, and some science I'm gonna kind of show you, you'll, I, think it's, I think it's obvious that this is, this is an event like an asteroid hitting the Earth. And unfortunately, uh, Bruce Willis couldn't stop this one. This is Revelation 8, verse 7, first trumpet. Then the first angel sounded his trumpet, and hell and fire mixed with blood hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up along with a third of the trees and all the green grass. So this is, and I, I, and I know that this is not something, I never thought that I'd be studying this, but I have studied a lot of asteroids in the last little bit. And so I, I, I want you to, I want to read you something here. This is from uh, Dr. Grossman. He's an asteroid expert. Now, I would love to talk with Grossman one time and just be like, hey, at what point in your life did you think, I'm going to go study asteroids? Was it, I, want, I think he watched Armageddon, became addicted. That's the only way I could see it happening. I also want to ask him, like, did you ever think that, like, you're studying this thing and that if you ever actually get a chance to study the real thing, you'll probably be dead. Just wanted to throw that out there. Seems like a useless career to me. But this is what he, this is what he says. He talks about uh, there's two major areas where we know asteroids have hit in the past. And they've studied the fallout from that and the things that they happen. And there is a, a, a layer of the earth around these for hundreds and hundreds of miles. They call it the KT boundary. And in this KT boundary, there is a concentration of iridium that is extremely rare on Earth. In fact, they think the only reason any iridium is ever found on Earth is because it comes from, it comes from asteroids. And so I want to, I want to read uh, this to you, and, and, and we can, I guess we can read it together because it's on the screen. There is evidence for the asteroid and the unique mineral content of the KT boundary, specifically a high concentration of iridium. This heavy element is very rare on Earth's surface, but is found in high quantities in meteorites. The implication is that the energy released in the collision fueled a fireball of vaporized rock that rose above the clouds in the way the asteroid in this way the asteroid's contents as well as the material at the crash site were dispersed across the globe creating a massive fires all over the face of the earth. The KT layer is thought to be the fallout from the fireball. Grossman told space.com a Teflon interview. So the thing that there's, there's two massive opportunities. So one of the things is when, when an asteroid, a larger asteroid comes into the Earth's atmosphere, it normally carries with it a lot of smaller objects around it. And when it enters into the atmosphere, those other smaller objects, uh, once they hit the atmosphere, they explode or they, they, they're, they're smaller and they can't handle it. And so they're dispersed throughout the earth. And it, as they're dispersed throughout the earth, it catches the earth on fire. The second way is what, what Dr. Grossman's saying is that when it actually hits, that it will shoot out all over the globe, these basically these fireballs, and it will light gas on fire and it will set fire to the earth. And so the thing that I really want you to see is that the first trumpet, they, all of these trumpets involve something coming from the sky. And this first impact uh, is gonna create a fire all over the earth that burns up a third of the earth, a third of the grass of the earth. And so I, I, I want you to kind of see, I just wanna put some, some practicality to what we're reading in the first trumpet. The second trumpet, uh, it says in, in verse eight, Revelation 8, 8, then the second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. 
A third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, I don't have to read anything to you there. He sees a great mountain, like something like a great mountain that is on fire, falling from the sky that hits the sea. And it's such a violent crash that it kills a third of the sea. It wipes out a third of the ships and it will undoubtedly create tidal waves. Uh, one of the things, if, if, if asteroids of greater size hit, they will uh, without doubt create earthquakes and themselves explode volcanoes and create other natural disasters that will follow along with them. So I think, I, I think that this is this great mountain that's on fire crashing into the earth. I, I, I'm, for me, I think that we've just, all we've done is put a name to it and we call it an asteroid. The third trumpet, then the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star burning like a torch fell from heaven and landed on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter like Wormwood oil and many people died from the bitter waters. So something else, you know, from this, it seems to be this one giant event, something else falls. And when this hits, it, it does one or two things. It poisons the water uh, and, and people drink the water and then they're dying from it. So it eliminates the water from being culpable. I want to read to you uh, something from uh, a, a small meteorite. I think it was only six feet long, hit a Peru, I think in 2009. And something unique happened uh, that they've experienced before, but never this violent, that after it hit, that uh, 600 people became sick in the area from breathing the air and from drinking the water. And so I wanna, I, I wanna show you why. This is a part of a report uh, that they gave out. It says, six days after the initial event, scientists from Peru's mining uh, Metallurgy and Geology Institute confirmed that a meteorite did crash in the area and that the impact stirred up arsenic fumes. Tests confirmed that groundwater in the area was contaminated with arsenic. The explosion sent up some of the arsenic in the form of gas, making people sick. So what the experts say is that as it hits, there's two things that happen. There is a significant amount of poison water and poison uh, toxic minerals and materials and gases on meteorites and on asteroids. There's also a lot of toxic stuff in our own ground that when the, when the asteroid hits uh, or when, when, when the star wormwood hits, that it, will, it does two things. It throws up gas into the air, toxicity into the air, that then it penetrates the water exactly like the third trumpet details, and then the water becomes poisonous. And if it's a large enough meteorite or a large enough asteroid and it, it, it takes up enough toxicity, it could, it could do this to a huge portion of the earth, that this would be very, something very likely to happen in case of an asteroid. So again, I, just, I want you to kind of just see some practicality to what we're reading. The fourth trumpet, Revelation 8, 12, it says, then the fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun and moon and stars were struck. A third of the stars were darkened and a third of the day was without light and a third of the night as well. So again, this is something that, that when there's such a huge impact, the dust, the debris, the stuff going up that it would cause a darkness in, in whatever portion of the earth was affected for days to weeks to months even. And so there's, there's one asteroid expert. I didn't know there was that many of them, but there are. Allison Tukamura, she kind of sums this up, all, all what we see in all four trumpets into one, one paragraph. And I want to read this to you just so you can, again, just kind of see the practicality of this. Though we can only speculate large impacts in the future, 
we can gain significant insight from studying smaller asteroid impacts from our past. What we know for sure is if any large meteor shower or even a small asteroid hits the Earth directly, there will be catastrophic damage worldwide for various reasons. There will be fires on a global level, poisonous gases moving through the atmosphere, earthquakes and volcanoes will undoubtedly be triggered, and giant dust clouds will plunge much of the Earth into complete darkness. So, uh, again, I want you to just see the timeline of events here. So you, you've got the seven seals, the first set of seals, the first part of the tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist. You got war, you got famine, you got plagues. Uh, and then you, you transition into this moment where something happens that causes heaven to be silent for 30 minutes. I believe that it is without doubt the abomination that causes desolation. The Antichrist sits on the Temple Mount. He sets up an idol of himself on the Temple Mount. He commands the world to worship, and the world begins worshiping the Antichrist as the Most High God. Instantly, an asteroid or something like this catastrophic event hits the earth almost instantaneously around the same time period. That creates significant damage in land and sea and water. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, would undoubtedly die from all of the destruction that comes upon the earth. And this is God causing this moment because of the abomination that causes desolation. They move into the fifth trumpet. And I'm gonna go through these kind of fast because once you really just see the meat of them, they're, they're very simple. They're not complicated. They're not mysterious. Of Revelation 9, 3 through 6, this is the fifth trumpet. And out of the smoke, locusts descended on the earth. And they were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. I want you to just hear the weight of what I'm about to read to you. Verse five, the locusts were not given power to kill them, but only to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the stinging of a scorpion. And those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will escape them. So locusts are annoying little creatures anyway. These locusts don't seem to be normal locusts. But God, in his judgment, he brings up millions and millions of these locusts, these bugs, to torment people for five months, but not to kill them. They will look for death and won't be able to find it. This is the fifth trumpet. Immediately after that, the sixth trumpet, Revelation 9, verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel with the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for this hour and day and month and year, very specific time frame, were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. I want to continue to read, and I want you to read exactly how the third of mankind dies, because I think that it's important. Now, the horses and riders in my vision look like this. The riders had breastplates, the colors of fire, sapphire, and sulfur. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceeded fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that proceeded from their mouths. For the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails. Indeed, there were tails were like snakes, 
having heads to, uh, to which inflict harm. So I want you, if we can, and this is heavy, because I'm going to say some pretty dramatic things in just a minute, but I want us to just really take in the weight of what we just heard and what we just read together and what, what we're studying so that we can understand this. As we move into the second part of the tribulation, I believe it's triggered by the abomination that causes desolation. Some catastrophic event like an asteroid hits the earth, causes deep devastation. Then locusts show up right in the aftermath of that. And for five months, torture people that don't kill them. Then immediately following that, there is a supernatural army that's raised up that executes a third of mankind. Specifically, they all die with fire, sulfur, and smoke. So I, I will give you my thought on this. You take it or leave it, it's a question mark. I'm, I'm not convinced that this is a 200 million man army. I, I, I think from the fire of the sulfur and the way that he describes them, it sounds a lot like drones to me. If you ever just, if you just read it for what it is, he's having a vision. It, but whatever it is, not really important, whatever it is, it kills a third of mankind. It executes a third of mankind with fire, smoke, and sulfur. And so I, I want to be really clear here. This is, this is a hard message. This is a hard message to preach because, you know, we're talking about God sanctioning the execution of a third of the world. I mean, that's the reality of what we're talking about. It's the reality of what we're saying. And I really, I really want us to feel the heaviness of this. I feel it. I really want you to understand God's heart in this. We are all sinners, every single one of us. We, we, we are all, the Bible says, hostile in our minds towards Christ, born into sin, left to our own and apart from Christ. There's no amount of evil we would not do or commit. We love sin. No one has to teach us how to sin. You ever notice that? My little Edie baby, she's as cute as she'll ever be. That little girl just popped out a liar. She's lies. Hudson tells the truth sometimes like, son, maybe you should just lie a little bit. He's like, I hit, her. I hit her with a broom, dad. But she didn't even tell on you. Why are you even, what are you even doing here? Edie, baby, not that way. She just, she just you ask her anything. Hudson did it. He's, he's, he's gone. He's been gone for two days. What are you talking about? My point is, as cute and funny as that is, we are born into sin. Nobody has to teach us how to sin. You have to be taught how to not sin. That's because sin is in us and we are sinners. We all deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the judgment of God. We deserve death. The only thing that I, I need you to hear me this morning, the only thing that separates us, you and me, and the world that will experience this wrath is because we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have put our faith in Jesus and they have rejected Jesus. God sent Jesus to the earth to absorb our wrath because the last thing God the Father wants to do is execute you. He loves you so deeply 
that his plan A was to execute his only begotten perfect son so that you, a wretched sinner, could find life and could be made righteous and could be saved and could be with him for all of eternity. That's how much he loves you. He knew that you would sin and he created you anyway. He knew that we would be sinners and he planned from the foundations of the earth. That's Jesus' name, the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. He had already set apart his own son to crush for your sins and for your iniquities. That's how much he loves you. But the thing that we have to remember and we have to understand, the reason he poured wrath and judgment out upon Jesus is because that is what sin and wickedness deserve. And you know this to be true. Because if I came to your house and I punched you in the face, you would know that I owe you something, that that wasn't right, that there was an injustice and I deserve something. Can I get an amen? Right. We spit in the face of God. We kill his children. We sin wickedly against God. All we know how to do as a human race is kill, steal, destroy. That's all we know how to do. That's all we know how to do. But instead of destroying us, he made a way for us through Jesus Christ. And for us to get an accurate picture of the tribulation, and I really want you to hear this. Yes, God is pouring wrath out, but he's doing everything in his power, even in the tribulation with the witnesses testifying, with the 144,000 preachers preaching the gospel, with the angels preaching the gospel around the world, he's giving them every opportunity to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Even in this moment, he's still looking for them to repent. But I wanna read this. I wanna, I wanna close the heaviness of this message with the way they close out the sixth trumpet. Revelation 9, 20. Now the rest of mankind, this is after the, the one third of it is killed. This is after the, the asteroid hits the earth. This is after all of this. Now the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They still did not repent. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Furthermore, they did not repent of their murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, and death. They still didn't repent after all of that. So I want you to see, yes, there is judgment of God being poured out on the earth, but even in this moment, God still wishes for them to repent and be saved. Our God's goodness and mercy, it never, ever ends until the end. And so I, I, I want us to see the goodness of God in this, but I also want it to break our hearts this morning for the lost because I think we get so distracted in this world and in this life that we forget the outcome of someone rejecting Jesus is eternal separation from the Father. I want you to hear me. Everything we just read, that's just what happens on the earth. That is not hell and that is not eternity. And so I I want us to do two things this morning. I want us to think about the weight of everything we just read. And if you are a Christian, I want you to thank God that Jesus paid the price for you so that you don't have to experience this 
and things like this for all of eternity because this is what we deserve. But in his mercy and his love and his grace, he gave us salvation and he gave us life and he gave us joy and he gave us peace and he's giving us eternity with him forever. So I want you to thank Jesus like you have never thanked him before. And the second thing is I beg you if you do not know Jesus Christ and you have never put your faith in Jesus, whether you're in this room or you're at home, God's mercy, his desire for you, his love towards you is that you would turn your life over to Christ, that you would repent of your sins, that you would ask for forgiveness and he will forgive you. God does not want you to experience anything but his goodness and his love and his mercy, but you have to believe. You have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Jesus that saves you and nothing else. And so if you're saved, worship him and thank him for your salvation. And if you're not, I plead with you, give your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ this morning. I know this is a heavy message, but we have to see the goodness, the righteousness, and the justice in it. The next message is a little heavy too, but the last message is one, I'm more excited to preach that than I ever have anything in life. It is about the second coming of Jesus. And it is about the reign of the righteous King. There is a light at the end of this dark tunnel. 